In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning and welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint WDEV in historic snowy Waterbury, Vermont. I'm your host, Brad Furl, and I'm your Monday host, and I'm going to be hosting Thursday. So look forward. I've got an uh, exciting author coming in uh, in his hiking adventures uh, around. Uh, so that will be very fun. And uh, we are now going to be talking with Kristen Gallagher, who is uh, owner of the Dodge Farm. Now, is it Barry or Berlin? Are you We're welcome? We're technically in Berlin. Thank You're... you. Thanks for having me, Brad. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great having you here. Um, listen, some listeners know that um, my daughter and I have um, 10 Finn sheep, and we've been involved with lambing and sheep for the last four years, and we love the sheep world. And and you're part of the sheep world, too. Yes. A big part right. now, right? Yeah, yes, totally. <laughs> so um, you, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how you got into farming, but I just briefly mentioned you've started Aurora Spinnery. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Aurora Spinnery is a fiber mill uh, using Belfast mini mill equipment. So the equipment comes from Prince, Prince Edward Island, and um, this company is still manufacturing equipment, and they have their equipment in every continent of the world. And it's known for doing small batches of yarn um, and roving and rug yarn. Um, but so you people with flocks like your size, 10 sheep, 3 sheep, uh, 40 sheep, send me their raw wool or alpaca or mohair, which is goat, and I turn it from raw fiber to their finished product for them. And uh, you had an open house, a very exciting open house, uh, with a lot of people. <laughs> Your barn was packed. Yes, totally. Uh, and I was so amazed by how much equipment you have put into this barn to do this process. Did you, when you first were ordering or, or, or making the purchase, did you realize how much was involved with it? Well, so the equipment came from an existing mill that was set up in Wadesfield by Susan Snyder. She had Mad River Fiber Mill, and I had approached her, I guess, almost two years ago now, saying I was curious about the process. Can I work trade? Can I work for her? And she teaches me how to do it. And then over the course of being there, it came up that she wanted to be done. And so I bought the equipment from her and we moved it from where she had it set up in Waitsfield to our location. So I knew, I knew what all the equipment was. I knew how to use it. And I also knew that I liked doing it. So when we set it up in our barn, we were prepared for that. And setting up in the barn was the 
barn prepared for that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Did anybody tell the barn about it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so we've been there 14 years and have been continuously trying to use the barn, which is actually three old barns moved there in the 1800s, set up specifically for a dairy, so with loose hay. So the downstairs floor has a really low ceiling uh, for Jersey cows, and it's you know it's hard to get in if you want to do anything else down there besides Jersey cow dairy. And then the upstairs has these huge ceilings for loose hay, also kind of tricky to get in. So it's been hard for us to figure out how to use the barn besides, I mean, we still hay, we make small square bales, so it's great for that storage, but this was exciting for us. It was a big renovation project, but we were also really excited to have a use for the barn and kind of uh, legitimize it being there and putting so much work into maintaining it. And I suppose you have to understand the weight process too, right? Will it hold all the stuff you put in there? Yeah, well, so... I feel very lucky that my husband is an engineer and my father and my uncle is also a um, carpenter. So we had lots of um, smart people on the job doing, making sure that all the timbers would hold and, and reinforcing where, where it needed it. So when you say um, with the jerseys, they were, uh, were they milked down below? Were there stanchions and all of that in place? Yeah. Yep. But, but low ceilings to. Right. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, it, um, so when we moved there, the old farmer, George Dodge, still lived on the farm. That's why it's called the Dodge Farm. Um, and he, people that know him, people that lived in the area, he's kind of famous because he, was almost at a 90 degree angle. He was so bent over from oh. his, from farming that, um, that it, you know, we joke like my husband is six foot and he was so much shorter and bent over. Everything was just designed for a different flow. <laughs> <laughs> it pays probably to be five foot two then. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> my French Canadian ancestry probably be just fine in there. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so you, what was your background before, um, Dodge Farm? Did you wake up as a little girl and go, I want to be a farmer and process wool? Uh, um, probably part of me did. I, I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, my, my, let's see, my great grandmother grew up, she, Hattie Boyce, she grew up in Faiston on a farm, and so it's in my blood. Um, growing up in Moortown, one of my dad's closest friends was Martin Von Trapp in Waitsfield, so that was a dairy farm that we spent a lot of time on, and that really seeped into me, the, just being there, you know, helping them hay, having the animals, the smell of a barn, all of that. Um, right from the beginning really spoke to me and has, you know, held through to kind of what I think a farm is um, and what I want my farm to be like. He actually passed away this summer, and so um, so I'm, I've just been really thinking a lot about how he created a farm. And um, anyway, so, so that was kind of like my roots and then one of my earliest – uh, high school jobs was working for Hadley Gaylord in Waitsfield. He has organic beef, pork, turkey, and chi- and um, vegetables. So I mostly worked in his vegetable gardens. Um, 
And then after high school, I went to UVM and studied agriculture there. Wow. I have a degree in ecological agriculture. Um, And so that was really helpful. And then my other kind of agricultural history is traveling and woofing. Have you heard of woofing? No. Uh, It stands for Willing Workers on Organic Farms. And... I'm curious how how much it's still happening because for me it was maybe the most formative experience. Um, I love traveling. I did quite a bit of traveling in my teens and 20s. And, um, you know, I would earn money to go, but I still wouldn't have a lot of money. And so the idea is that you get somewhere, you've made contact with the people ahead of time, but you trade your work for lodging, for, for a place to stay. Usually it was just my tent. I would pitch a tent there. But they would, you know, feed us and show us the area, bring us to local theater, or show us where the hiking trails were, the swimming spots. It was, and it, and you got to be a part of their family and their home. Um, and so I've done that. Uh, let's see, in Chile and Switzerland and Spain. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Brave and adventuresome, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, that sounds amazing. And when you were at UVM. Um, we were, my daughter and I were actually driving out, uh, by the, the farm and all the, there were a lot of beautiful horses in the pasture. Was that part of what you did? No, at so UVM? that, that was more the animal sciences. That okay. the, the kind of the dairy and the equestrian section was not what I took classes in as much. I, I was the plant and soil science department. Got it. Um, I was told that Vermont soils have, have, really started to become depleted. Is that true? Or are we rejuvenating soils the way we need to? Oh gosh. I I think it depends so much on on a local area. I think a lot of people are and and that a lot of places struggle to. I I know that um that there's a lot of things going on to deplete and poison the soils. And there's a lot of people that are adding organic matter really consciously and building them up too. I mean, and it's interesting with this last flood that happened this summer, historically that would be this huge regenerative event mm. with all the, the river bottom, the silty soil replenishing the, the floodplain, the floodplains and floodplain farming was a whole thing yeah um it's really hard with the actual event but historically that would be bringing a lot of organic matter to those soils and now along with that it's bringing the propane and (laughs) all the other toxins (laughs) but but that's quite interesting i that's uh you brought the upside of a flood to to our discussion because we haven't heard too many but mother nature is going okay i think we need to put a little more nutrients on the fields yeah i mean mean, that's floods happen wow each century so that um, that's something that farmers have have capitalized on in the past we're talking this morning with Kristen Gallagher, who is uh, the Dodge Farm and Aurora Spinnery at the Dodge Farm, which is this new processing mill for wool. Just amazing operation. And you've got so much going on. Uh, we'll get back a little bit to 
preparation of the barn when when I was when my daughter Chelsea and I were there it, for your open house looking up at the ceiling the roof it looked like major work was that internal was that your husband and everybody yeah yeah so one of the things that we have really loved about being in that barn and the old farmhouse is the old timbers so the so looking up in the ceiling you could see the layers of history the old timbers that are up there are 30 foot long hand-hewn timbers and then so we kept those we had to add a couple for for more support um, but then um, put a ceiling up there and yeah that's what you're looking at so the new and the old yeah it's great so I totally relate to you our farmhouse was brought across the ice in St. Albans by oxen in around 1860. Wow. And uh, it's it's where it sits now. We have 150-year-old oaks out front, and God knows what wildlife we have living in the walls. I don't know if you you guys are a little more renovated than we are, but (laughs) I wouldn't say we're too evolved. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, what? Well, the, the old farmhouse, like George had insulated a, the few rooms downstairs that he lived in without hot water, but then the rest of the house had no insulation, literally. Yep. And so, and we were thinking that that's part of the reason that it had maintained itself. Like we came in and spray foamed the walls and said, okay, now we just put an end date to this house because you trap moisture in uh-huh. and that's when the, the tim, you know, things start deteriorating. But keeping children warm. But keeping children warm is important. <laughs> yeah. I start a fire every morning early to, yeah. to heat up the downstairs and try not to burn oil, uh, but it does happen. Yeah. So you got to work with the former owner of the equipment, and I mean, it... It looked complicated to me. What was it? Is it as complicated as it looks, or is it just sort of this natural progression of what you do, washing and all of that? I would say that the the process is, you know, from step to step is fairly intuitive, and I learned how to to process by hand, taking raw wool to the spinning wheel by hand, and that was really helpful to have the. Um, you know the the knowledge on the process the the individual working the individual tools takes quite a bit of training especially the spinner mm. <laughs> um there's a lot of different so the the Belfast mini mill equipment is unique in that it is designed to be um to be able to process a wide variety of yarn. You can make something very thin, like a fingering weight, or you could do lopi, which is a very fat single. And so the equipment has a lot of things that you can change on it, a lot of um, mechanisms, bars you can move, different pieces you can adjust, replace. Um, and so a lot, that just takes time learning. I was intrigued by that, what you're saying, because you really become an artist for the wool, don't you? Yeah. Um, not yeah. only in color, but in, in how thick it is, thin it is, everything about it. I love that freedom. Yeah, right. Totally. I mean, and people that, that know what they want as an end product, a certain garment or rug or, you know, whatever it is they can work backwards, right, and say, like, this is what I want, and now it's my job to figure out how to get that particular fiber to move through the equipment to yield 
what they're wanting. So I, I really like that piece. It's a challenge and it's, and it's an art. And what are the colors that you, how do you do a, the dyeing process for wool? Is that natural raspberries or what? <laughs> what do you use? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, I, really love to do the plant dyes. I have I have done chemical dyes before and just don't love them as much. The the plant dyes that I um that I dye with are marigold and goldenrod that that makes a yellow to orange. Um matter root is another plant that I grow that is a a plant that has a root that's red and then blue is indigo. And so within with those uh, colors you can make any other color. Wow. Do you want me to bring you some goldenrod? <laughs> we seem to have an abundance. I know. Yeah, that's, that is one that I am never lacking either. And not good for sheep, really. I don't. Right. I think it's. You know, the cows will eat it when it's younger, interestingly. Uh, the sheep are a little pickier, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although we've been. We've become the uh, receptacle for pumpkins, fortunately. People are dropping them off or giving them to us, and we're feeding them to our sheep, and they they love pumpkins. Yes, and they get the, all the orange nose. <laughs> yeah, and I'm the nine-year-old boy who loves smashing pumpkins in the yard, so it kind of works out well. It's a good team, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fun. So the... When you say you you did it by hand, meaning um, tell us about what that entails, washing and, and, and the like. Yeah, so that's washing, and then I would just kind of open it with my hands so that it could go through the drum carter, uh, which is in our mill. You can practice it. My girls still love to use it. It's just a, a small drum that you have a hand to turn, and it feeds through and opens and aligns the fibers so that it's ready to spin on your spinning wheel. And that's that's those are those are the pieces of equipment that I had and with that you can do it. And carding it, was that part of it or, or that's, that's what so the that's drum what the drum does. carter, right? Yeah. So you can have hand carters yeah. or a drum carter. And I have been to some of the uh county fairs where um these women were so proficiently spinning wheel. It looked just like magic, like a, a, a children's fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I love that you say that because that's why we named it Aurora Spinnery. <laughs> Aurora is, um, the, the newest name that we have given the character in Sleeping Beauty. Uh, and, and a lot of the old fairy tales have spinners and weavers in them. So right. There's a lot of magic there. And I and I feel like I connect with that kind of ancestral root of being a maker and a doer, something that we do with our hands and um I I feel a big connection with that. Was that um a combination of you and your daughters or this was Aurora was um and Sleeping Beauty was really part of your early life? I it came directly out of my daughters. I, I homeschooled my daughters up until last year. And one of the things that we spent most time doing was reading. I, I would read to them for incredible amounts of time and they loved the old fairy tales and I didn't. I, I, yes, I mean, I, I felt like the, I didn't like how the prince was always the savior. I didn't like the, the economic 
disparity of royalty and peasant. And, you know, I kept thinking, like, why do my children love these stories? Like, let's put these on the shelf and grab something else. And so I, over time... I, I stopped fighting them on it, and I said, you know, they must know something about this. They might, Why are they gravitating towards this? And I started thinking about the stories differently in that we play all the characters. We are the princess. We are the prince. We save ourselves, And it's more of an internal kind of lesson on how to live our own life. And so through that lens, I... Um, became much more curious about how to talk to them about these stories and how to empower them. Um, and so then I became really curious about the stories themselves. And Sleeping Beauty is fascinating because the if you've ever seen any of the Disney movies or stories, the story is that Aurora, on her christening, gets cursed by... Um, the fairy godmothers, and to prick her finger on a spindle when she turns 15. This is fascinating because a spindle is also called a drop spindle, and it's a method of spinning yarn. There's nothing pokey on it. You cannot prick your finger on a spindle. (laughs) (laughs) And in the movies, you always see um, an image of a spinning wheel that she pricks her finger on, and there's also nothing pokey on on a spinning wheel. So I started looking at the old stories to see how this had morphed into something that is nonsensical, yet we spend so much time focusing on. (laughs) Um, And the old stories, you know, there's like these stories all come from the 1300s through like King Arthur time when the church was coming in and kind of changing the the Gaelic stories, the the multiple like the the honoring of multiple goddesses to one god, and there was like this whole um, you know struggle. Um, and so these stories are compiled. There's this book called Persephorest that was compiling all these stories of the 1300s, and Sleeping Beauty is part of it. And it and it actually like this character Zelandine. She's a princess, and her father wants her to marry, you know, a good bloodline. She falls in love with somebody called Troilus, who's kind of a you know a nobody, and um, and she kind of gets cursed by these these fairy god mothers and gets um uh but the curse is that when she's 15 she's going to be spinning flax and get a shard of flax in her finger Hmm. and the shard of flax will make her go to sleep so this happens and she gets brought up to a tower just like rapunzel (laughs) locked away in this tower with her handmaiden and um Troilus comes, is brought by this, like, Greek griffin, flies him up, and um, and actually he kisses her, and then through this, like, whole debate, ethical debate with the griffin and all these Greek myths, um, ends up impregnating her. She gives birth to this baby who ca- crawls up and sucks the, the flax fiber out of her finger, and she awakens. Wow. So that's the real story of Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> uh, we're going to return to that in a minute. Okay. This is, uh, we're talking with uh, Kristen Gallagher with the Dodge Farm and Aurora Spinnery and and now Fairy Tales, which uh, <laughs> I love, quite frankly. And I want to talk about that a little bit more, uh, the, mm-hmm. just the importance of all this for our daughters, um, because it's, 
it's just so much there. I was I was really taken by what you said, um, Kristen. M- my daughter at fourteen would uh, definitely be uh, "I am woman, hear me roar" kind of thing, and would be kicking the princess off the, off the horse and yeah. riding herself. And and you're role modeling that, but you also kind of. Your your daughter's brought you around to something that you weren't necessarily on board with originally. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating to be a parent and watch them. I think they come in as their own people, and it's easy for us to try to morph them. And I think guiding them is important, but also just kind of honoring their their innate needs and interests is, is has been a lesson for me as well. Yeah, and I learned uh, with my son first. He's the older uh, that I cannot think that anything he did is what I did, right? Yeah, right. You guys are separate beings. Totally. Right. And and I love that. Everybody has their own little soul. Yeah. So uh, there's an old novel I love, Day in the Life of Ivan Dzenovich, and it starts, you know, it's in this Russian work camp, but, and you're in the Dodge Farm's not a Russian work camp, but... What's your day like? What you, you started? Oh, dark thirty and. Uh, no, we get up at six. Okay. And um, I mean, it's different now that my daughter goes to public school. She gets on the bus at seven. Um, so so we kind of now go our separate ways. I it's awesome having the mill at our property, so I can keep things going. Like I can keep the wash going. Um, while I do chores and kind of dapple around. I mean, we, we kind of, we have a farm, but I would call a lot of what we do the homestead level. So we've got endless amounts of little projects that are needing requirement throughout the day. We'll talk more about that. Um, but we have a caller on the line. Uh, welcome to, uh, Vermont Viewpoint. Good morning. Am I with you now? You are. Hi. This is Goddard from South Woodbury. And uh, my partner and I have been enjoying this interview. This is the only place with only radio station within a thousand miles that is having anything like this go on. So you all should be very proud of that. Well, thank you for that. Okay, now after 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 the strokes, here comes the little the kicks. Okay. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, and you're lucky because I'm exhausted from shoveling heavy snow, so I won't rave on too long. It's great to hear about the Belfast Mini Mills. We are very, my wife and I are very well acquainted with that operation, know the proprietors, and are very familiar with that hardware, and you, you really do have the best, so you're lucky. Yeah, I agree. That's... Now, as now I want you to get this clear, it was my wife who, who jumped up and down and screamed and hollered about reclaiming uh, these traditions for women. That's a good thing. However, there's also something in life called history. In Western culture, we're not even going to talk about non-Western cultures. Uh, spinning and weaving has historically been a bi-gender or, or non-gender specific occupation. Uh, men were in, have been intimately involved in spinning and weaving uh, from for at least a thousand years that, that we can trace in literature both historical literature and and creative you know slash poetic slash folkloric literature uh, and it even comes down to the 19th century George Eliot writes about that so you know I'm glad that the young that the, that the young females are getting into it 
But it's, um, you know, we should reclaim it for the guys, too, for the, for the young boys. They need to know this. this is part yes, of definitely. Yeah, I agree. I, in fact, I know a highly skilled male weaver in Vermont who is highly praised. I, that is definitely a celebrated part of the history, too. I, I appreciate you uh, giving voice to the to the male side of this, too. Yeah, thank you, Goddard. And we were, uh, we were just, uh, grandstanding for our daughters there earlier. <laughs> but definitely appreciate, uh, that it's, that it's universal and it should. And, and Kristen and I were talking off air that we don't, we don't want one to rise without the other rising. So it's, it's really the benefit of all. So we appreciate your call. Good work. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for the praise for this radio station. I, I can't agree more, and I'm sort of the new kid on the block here, but I love that uh, talk radio is still alive and well in, in Vermont, and we get such wonderful guests coming in. Um, at the farm, you, you've really diversified, I guess you would say that, but you tr- you're trying to be self-sufficient. Is that with, with food and energy as well, the, the whole gambit? Yes, I, that's what we strive for. Um, we, st- we still go to the grocery store, but we, we grow a lot of our own food. We have beef cows and fruit trees and bushes and vegetables and, and over, over our time at the farm, we've tried selling a lot of those products and and just struggled making making money selling food, doing it the way we wanted to. So this has been um, a really good kind of combination for us, having the the fiber mill. My husband works at a company called iDry, making vacuum kilns for drying lumber. Um, we. I have 200 acres at the farm, and so we harvest our own firewood. Um, yeah, that's, wow. that's our cycle. And electricity, are you into solar at all yet? Or we, we do have solar panels. We have solar panels on our house, and it's not clear that they're going to really pay for themselves. I'm, I'm not totally sure about that endeavor, Yeah. Um, but it's been a learning process. The um, I was looking at your breeds of sheep, and we know that there's about 200 breeds of sheep. So picking something out is um, you have to narrow it down. You have merinos and Polworth, which I've never heard of, and border leicesters I have. What was what was the thinking behind what you wanted to do, mostly with merinos, right? Yeah. Well, so Vermont actually has a, a long history with merino. Um, I think it was in the 1700s. Jardis, a man named Jardis, brought them from Spain, and so in the 1800s there were actually more merino sheep than people, like hugely so. And if you go, if you visit the state house, they have pictures of the three different versions of the state house. Like the first one burned, and then they, or no, one was across the street, and then the second one burned, and so they built it again. And, and around the state house, there's actually sheep in the photo, and those are all merino. In the time of the Civil War, uh, Vermont was known for its merino wool and its Morgan horse, two things that were hugely beneficial to the war effort, you know, for the clothing and for the horses um, for for the soldiers. Um, and, uh, you know, as it went on, like a lot of agriculture, it kind of moved west where it's easier to have bigger ranches and um, 
and a lot of the so then the smaller Vermont farms couldn't compete in the in the economy of wool and and that has kind of been the standard and I feel like I want to have soft wool and I want it to to be from here I'm I just kind of fundamentally connect more with small farms than big ag and I, I know that the kind of western big ag movement with merino has made some steps in the humane farming like they used to practice this thing called mule sing which was really harmful to lambs and then they said okay we don't want to do that anymore um, but it is still a big ag economy out there and so I'm trying to bring more smaller farms with merino support smaller farms with merino in the east so that um, we're, we are more self-sufficient with the the fine wool and are you um, breeding and lambing to for your own use but also you're selling lambs out is that right i'm still building my flock you are there's yeah. two farms both in new york right now uh, Will High Farm, owned by Heidi Simmons, and um, Fox and Hound Farm. Um, Jackie, I'm forgetting Jackie's last name, but that's who I've gotten my breeding stock from, and I'm hoping to build my flock. My dream would be to have lambs for sale, but I'm I'm definitely not there yet. And what would be the number of sheep that you would have on your farm? Do you think? Uh, my kind of vision is 50. Yeah. And then and breeding every year and yeah yeah. So I have a question for you. We we have bred two ewes, you know, in one fall session, and then we have lambing with only two sheep in you know in in March or April. Yeah. So we might have seven lambs total in the barn, which for us seemed like a big deal. Yeah, I mean it is. It's a big deal. But when you get what happens when um. Somebody I was looking, talking about getting a ram from, they, they're, they're breeding like 80 sheep in one season. How do you even deal with all the lambs that are dropping out of their mouths? Right? <laughs> uh, well, I don't have personal experience with that yet. I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Um, but the mothers really, I mean, I feel like part of, um, part of, you know, being the farmer is to, to breed for success, right? And so the idea is that those 80 mothers are doing what they need to do and they're taking care of their lambs. So if you support the mothers, then pretty much they're going to support the lambs. And and you might have to intervene here and there, but but generally the moms have it. Good metaphor, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking with Kristen Gallagher uh, with the Dodge Farm and Aurora Spinnery. Uh, You become sort of like this expanded farmer and we, I did want to mention Vermont at one point was not like uh, wooded it was meadows on our mountains it was quite open right which is a whole different look than we have now for sure right and I think that uh, part of the issue eventually not only what you're talking about competition which we experience now from the bigger states but erosion in Vermont started getting more dramatic as things grew so right. um, part of the sheep farming was not as practical in the, in with with water and rains and all of that stuff the weather the so. hill farms yeah right. yeah so um 
with the farm, you've got um, n- not only the sheep, um, but also you're doing uh, beef cattle. Correct. So do you have a lot of cattle, and you graze them, and then how's that all work? So the the beef cows are really there to keep the land going. It's it's not so much of a money maker. We have like uh, they fluctuate between twenty and thirty beef cows, and um, and so we do on-farm slaughter. We do two or to four each fall. Wow. And sell directly to families. Um, and so that, you know, we have this old haying equipment and we hay a couple of our neighbors' land, uh, just enough for the sheep and cows that we have. But it is, you know, one of the glue of the fam, of the farm. Like we hang season is one of our favorite events. We have, with the nature of these small square bales is that you need a hay crew when it's time to get hay in the barn. That's, you know, 10 to 15 folks and everyone comes and gets really sweaty and works really hard. And then we all share a meal afterwards. And to me, it's a real celebration of connection to land and people and, um, it's one of one of the things that I loved so much at the Von Trapp farm and love carrying on that sense of community. And and I noticed that farms in general kind of bring people together in that way, that that we have a yearning to be a part of land and work with the land and work with each other. And I feel like the, the heydays are quintessential in that way. I love that. And how many bales would you put in a season about? We put in about 4,000. Wow. So I'm uh, listening carefully because I usually um, do all the hay stacking myself. Yes, right. <laughs> I think I have to start a community, don't I? You do. You need some help. You make a little hay train. And... Yes. It's a lonely job when I'm walking up a ladder with a bale of hay in my hands and trying to throw it up into the loft on my own. (laughs) Well, do you like to cook? Because you could say, hey, I'll make dinner for everybody. I love to cook. So I... I'm, I, like I said, I'm taking notes here. <laughs> um, do you need bees on your farm or is that sort of a natural process? Or? So we had a lovely couple have bees, keep bees at our farm for, uh, I don't know, something like six years. And then with COVID, they were feeling overwhelmed. And so they stopped that project at our farm. And last year I tried with my eldest daughter having bees and she loved it. I was, I was really impressed with how calm she was and how into the whole project she was. Um, but they didn't make it through the winter. And so now we're, we're looking for some from Vermont, um, bees that are more likely to survive the winter up here. Cause mm-hmm. I'd like to do that again. And are, are the girls there? They're farmers, right? They, they, that's, this is what they know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that was the main reason I wanted to homeschool them was that we wanted to homeschool them, my husband and I, because we, we wanted them to have such a strong connection to the land. And we felt like that was just time spent doing it and, um, just have them around for everything that was happening. So they've witnessed, Multi, you know, tons and tons of births and deaths and the whole cycle, the compost pile and harvesting, 
the whole the whole spectrum. Um, so now that my daughter is 12, she's at U32, she's in a new phase of her life where she's like, okay, she needs to know the whole world out there. She wants to know the pop culture. She wants to know everything. Her friends are the most important part. And so I'm, I'm hoping that that kind of base connection with the land will stick with her through this next phase of life. But who knows? I mean, like we were saying before, our kids are not us, and yeah. they take their own path. I um, am so I so love that my daughter will muck a barn with me, yeah. right? We have the wheelbarrow. We each have pitchforks. And if you've never mucked a barn, it's... It's beautiful and it's horrible. Right, totally. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, it's smelly and it's hard work and you're, you're no manure magically. There, we, what we do need is we need like these elves or something that can magically <laughs> move manure, but we don't, we don't have them. We are the elves. We are the we? elves, right? Yeah. Yep. But then if you have a garden and you put your manure in the garden, you realize how much that's gold, right? Like, yeah. It's it really is part of the cycle. It's food for the next thing. Right. Maybe it's a little tie into the Rumpelstiltskin thing and <laughs> <laughs> spinning gold right. uh, in our own way. Right. Right. Um, but I love what you're saying about. I I think the roots are so important. Anything that's healthy that our kids are doing. Like farming and um, whatever else you're doing, right? Do you, is music part of your world? Yeah, yep. Um, so my daughter plays the violin. She's played violin for a number of years and loves it. And our youngest plays the cello. Wow. And we have a, a couple of friends that come over and we'll we'll jam with them. Um, and it, yeah, music is something that I I definitely prioritize for them, and I wish I did for myself more. I, I used to play the piano. Um, but at least they're doing it. Well, and you still can, of course, yeah. <laughs> in your spare time. Right? <laughs> so can she not only play violin, but can she play violin as a fiddle? Yeah, a- that's what she learned as a fiddle. Okay. And and now she's in the orchestra. So it's turned from a fiddle to a violin. So exciting. Wow. Yeah. Um, so is this a dream? It, I, you know, sometimes things are hard work day to day, but if if you step back, is this a dream for you? Yes, this is a dream for me. Yeah, especially with the fiber mill piece too. I mean, we'll well, it'll be a weekend day, and all four of us will be in there. Lauren, my husband, will be fixing something that's his forte. You know, my daughters will be playing with wool, making some piece of art, and I'll just step back and be like, "Wow, I can't believe that we have this. This is amazing." And I can look back through all the iterations of projects that have brought us to this point, and I feel grateful for, that we've all shown up for the work and so appreciative of the community that we have that that do do this with us and and so appreciative that there are so many Vermont and New England farms that want me to process their wool and have sheep and be in connection with their own land. Well, you are truly a gift to all us sheep farmers because we 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 have bags of wool three bags full now we have a lot more than that uh and (laughs) so it's it's the symmetry is beautiful so i thank you for what you're doing because it's brave too you you made this investment that's pretty major and hopefully it's going to be a long-term really both financially but 
you know, spiritually. Yeah. What it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, they're hand in hand. So we have been talking with Kristen Gallagher. If you have sheep, you have wool, how do they get, how do people get in touch with you? We have a website, auroraspinnery.com, and you can get in touch with us through that website. And they would contact you and then they maybe could drop off wool, do sample or something, show you what they have and. Yep. And go. we have our, our price sheet up there so you can see all the different products that we make. Um, and then we could have a conversation specific to their fiber. And then you become artists together. You become right. a team. Exactly. In this greater global family, right? Yes. Uh, I really thank you for being with me for the hour. It was um, learned a lot, and uh, we'll have you back. Thank you, Brad. This is very enjoyable. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you're welcome. Uh, it's Kristen Gallagher from the Dodge Farm in Berlin. Aurora Spinnery at the Dodge Farm. It's this amazing process, amazing barn amazing family who are doing something that goes back hundreds of years in Vermont and uh, making a difference in all aspects of it. I'll be back on Thursday. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV in historic Waterbury. Stay safe out there with the snowy winter coming, and uh, we hope you're having a great Monday. Monday.